This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to Africa News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... President Cyril Ramaphosa has acknowledged the loans and similar ones given to other African nations could exacerbate the continent's debt crises. That's Darren Taylor reporting on concerns about debt South Africa is staking to convert to green energy. Details coming up also. The U.S. is doubling its reward for helping capturing Somali militants. And AU President Macky Sall meets with world leaders at the G20 summit. We'll have these stories and more on African News tonight. We start with our top story. The COP27 summit on climate change continues this week in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. VOA correspondent Heather Murdoch is at the conference, and she joins me now online to update us on the discussions today. Welcome to Africa News Tonight, Heather. Hello, thank you. So there's a new proposal for financial support for nations battered by climate disasters. It has been presented. Can you give us a few details on that? Well, the the new proposal that has received support from several European countries in the West um, is called the Global Shield for Climate Risk. And so far, about $200 million has been pledged to this fund. And the idea is it's essentially an insurance fund. And the idea is that this fund is intended to get money to the most hardest-hit disaster areas after or even before a climate change-related disaster in vulnerable communities. And the idea is to get that money quick. And this is something that is greatly lacking. However, this plan also has its critics. Uh, First of all, it's not nearly enough. Back in 2009, the number that was identified as how much money is needed to cover, to help developing countries with climate change disasters was $100 billion, which is way more than $200 million that they're talking about now. And the other question is that because it's an insurance scheme, Some people wonder if that would be problematic because, as we know, the areas that are the most vulnerable are also the most volatile and the most difficult to be covered by traditional or even innovative insurance. Also, uh, one of the themes of today's session was water. What are some of the issues there? Water, as you know, is a huge issue that is related to every other climate change issue. So, I mean just the basic conversation about global warming, which is the main uh, thrust of this climate change conference, is that the level of the seas will rise and cities and towns and even even island nations will disappear. Um, But water is related to every aspect. Either too much water can cause disasters, such as floods. This year we've seen unprecedented floods uh, in Nigeria and Pakistan and other countries that have killed more than 2,300 people in Nigeria and Pakistan alone. Um, And then in other places, there's not nearly enough water. There are droughts, the worst drought in 40 years in the Horn of Africa, and people in Somalia are already dying from hunger because there is not enough food, because there is not enough water. 
And this drought's not limited to Africa. There's also droughts in the Middle East and in other continents. I mean, I've talked to farmers that say they're experiencing the worst drought there in Syria in 70 years. And Iraqis that are fleeing their homes because their marshlands are drying up and the farmland is no longer viable. And families in Libya that can no longer irrigate their farms, moving to cities and towns because they can't live where they're, they're, they're from anymore. So this issue of water impacts people's lives all over the globe and is at the very heart of the climate change issue. Water, a blessing and a curse. Uh, another theme was gender. What were some of the discussions on that topic? that today was, um, of the themes today, water and gender, that gender was one of the themes for the climate conference today. And for, you know, for most of history, large decisions, international conferences, and uh, important high-level discussions are usually taken place by, done by men. And one of the things that was on the table today to discuss was not just that women are important, but that women should be included more and that women should have their voices heard in high-level discussions on a regular basis. And one of the reasons why this is important is because they have found that women are disproportionately impacted by climate change. So uh, one of the topics on the table today was African women. And if you're talking about rural women in general and women uh, in rural Africa specifically, you find that it, they're disproportionately impacted by climate change in, to an extreme level because they're disproportionately working in fields like agriculture that are impacted by the environment. Um, another example, which seems small but it's huge in so many millions of women's and girls' lives, is, is water for the family. Usually in rural areas, in Africa and other places, when the family needs to travel, like an individual in the family needs to go someplace to collect water, clean water for the family to drink. It's usually women and girls that do it. So when an area dries up or a well dries up and somebody has to miss other parts of their life, specifically schools for young people, it's usually the, the females that have to travel sometimes for hours every single day just to get enough water for their families to drink. Um, and this leads to so many other outcomes the most obvious being the lack of education for rural girls because of this. VOA's Heather Murdoch, thank you for your input. Thank you so much. South Africa has used the International Climate Change Conference, COP27, in Egypt to secure loans of hundreds of millions of dollars to finance renewable energy projects. Africa's most industrialized country burns coal to generate electricity and to drive its economy, emitting harmful gases responsible for global warming. But there are growing concerns about lack of transparency around financing for South Africa's energy transition and how the government's going to pay the debt. Darren Taylor reports. The Just Energy Transition Partnership is designed to move South Africa away from burning coal, which pollutes the atmosphere with carbon. Health experts have linked it with conditions such as asthma, cancer and lung disease. The partnerships funded by the United States, United Kingdom, France, Germany and the European Union. We should not rejoice. We should wonder why the government is taking loan after loan after loan in foreign currency. Dick Forslund is director of the Alternative Information and Development Center in South Africa. He says the country obviously needs richer countries to give it loans to help it move to cleaner energy. 
but he's worried the government's borrowing too much. And in the future, South Africans will suffer when it has to cut budgets in order to service the debt. This started in uh, January this year with the 750 million US dollar loan, which the finance minister really couldn't explain in parliament why the country needed it. Then you had another World Bank loan two weeks ago for repurposing the Komati coal power station of 497 million US dollars. And now you have this for 600 million euros. We don't need all these... France and Germany are the latest to pledge large loans to South Africa. President Cyril Ramaphosa has acknowledged the loans and similar ones given to other African nations could exacerbate the continent's debt crises. He's asking international donors and philanthropists to provide Africa with more funding for green energy projects. Climate Justice Coalition Secretary Alex Lanferner says lenders and donors should make sure their funds are used properly. In 2008, the African National Congress, the ANC, borrowed billions of rands to finance construction of two new coal-fired power stations. The facilities were supposed to be completed in 2014, but remain unfinished, racked by graft and mismanagement. Energy experts say this is partly responsible for the long power outages afflicting South Africa. Len Furner says it's no wonder there's suspicion about the ANC's sudden enthusiasm for clean energy projects. We can't forget that you know the ANC does have a long history of corruption in the energy sector. So I think there's a lot of different elements that we need to worry about and that we need to ensure that there's proper democratic accountability and oversight so that we can ensure that these deals work in our interests, are not funneled off in problematic ways to particular vested interests and aren't sucked into the vortex of corruption that is the ANC governance right now. Ramaphosa has promised full transparency about how the loans are used, but so far he hasn't promised to allow civil society and citizens to have a say in the projects that in the future will supply their energy needs. This is concerning, says Lenferner. So what does it mean to call an energy transition just, right? One of the elements of justice is procedural justice. It's making sure you have the right voices in the room who understand, you know, for example, how they're going to be impacted by this. And here we can think about coal workers and communities dependent on coal who maybe have a good sense of what support that they need. So it's really important that they're a vital part of shaping what this looks like. Right now, says Lenferna, citizens are just hearing about astronomical amounts of dollars and promises that the future is going to be brighter, literally and figuratively. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. You can follow developments at COP27 on voaafrica.com, voanews.com and all your favorite VOA programs. 
East African community leaders have announced peace talks will be held next week to help quell the violence between the government of the Democratic Republic of Congo and M23 fighters. Reuters News says the East African community did not confirm who would take part in the talks on November 21st in Nairobi. The wire service notes the meeting takes place as regional military efforts are underway to stabilize Eastern DRC. The effort includes the arrival in the region yesterday of several hundred Kenyan peacekeepers, part of an EAC joint force to improve security. Diplomatic efforts are also underway to stop the fighting with both Angolan and Kenyan leaders meeting with DRC President Felice Teshikedi in Kinshasa in recent days. The M23 is one of the largest of the more than 100 rebel militias fighting for resources and control in the eastern DRC. The U.S. government has announced a reward of up to $10 million for information that helps find three leaders of Somali terrorist group Al-Shabaab who are wanted for attacks that killed thousands of people in East Africa. Mohamed Yusuf reports from Nairobi, Kenya. The U.S. government is asking the citizens of Somalia and the region to help trace Al-Shabaab leaders Ahmed Diriye, Mahat Karate and Jihad Mustafa the three are accused of playing roles in several deadly terrorist attacks in Somalia and Kenya. U.S. Ambassador to Somalia, Larry Andre, speaking in Nairobi Monday, said the new $10 million reward, doubled from the previous offer, will complement the Somali government's effort to defeat the Al-Qaeda-affiliated terrorist group. Today we announced the doubling of the reward offers for information leading to the capture of those leading Al-Shabaab. We also announced a new program aimed at disrupting al-Shabaab's financial networks. Let me stress that this is in support of the announced strategy of the Somali government. So the Somali government's strategy is to contest the false religious ideology, to go after the finances, and to confront on the battlefield to liberate Somali communities. Somali government troops and local militias are involved in a military offensive aimed at driving al-Shabaab out of dozens of villages and towns in central Somalia. U.S. officials said arresting the al-Shabaab leaders will disrupt the group's operations and safeguard the region's peace and prosperity. According to U.S. authorities, Ahmed Diriye, also known as Abu Ubaidah, is al-Shabaab's top leader. He was seen in a video meeting fighters who carried out attacks at a U.S. military camp in Lamu County, Kenya, in 2020. Mahad Karate is a group's deputy leader and has at least partial command over the Aminiat, Al-Shabaab's security and intelligence wing. Also on the list is Jihad Mustafa, a military instructor and the leader of the foreign fighters in Somalia. Mustafa, a former resident of San Diego, California, functions as an intermediary between al-Shabaab and other terrorist organizations. The deputy chief of mission at the U.S. Embassy in Kenya, Mark Dillard, said the reward covers information about illegal financial activities and businesses. To further demonstrate our resolve to disrupt and dismantle al-Shabaab's network, the United States, with the support of our Kenyan and regional partners, the United States is offering reward money for information that would lead to the identification and disruption of al-Shabaab's revenue sources and funding streams. This includes information on al-Shabaab's exploitation of local natural resources, on financial donors and facilitators, 
and on financial transactions. Monday's announcement marks the first time the U.S. State Department's Rewards for Justice program has offered money for information on Al-Shabaab's financial networks. Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi. In Cameroon, health workers at diabetics are marching on World Diabetes Day today to protest insecurity that is being blamed for a jump in deaths among diabetic patients. Health workers say Cameroon's separatist conflict and terrorism near the borders with Chad and Nigeria are preventing 70% of patients from being treated. Moki Edwin Kinzeka reports from Yaoundé, Cameroon. Scores of diabetics and hospital workers braved a heavy downpour in Cameroon's capital Yaoundé on Monday to march against what they call abuse of diabetes patients' rights. The protesters say Cameroon's separatist conflict and Islamist militants on the borders with Chad and Nigeria are preventing diabetics from getting life-saving treatments. 45-year-old fish seller Pierre-Marie Longsi is among the protesters. Le diabète, ce n'est pas une maladie qui peut nous tuer, mais c'est le stress qu'on nous donne. He says many patients are dying of stress and lack of medication. Longsi says patients should not be restricted from going to hospitals in areas where there are conflicts and hospitals should not be targeted by armed men. The government says Boko Haram militants in northern Cameroon and separatists in the country's west often attack hospitals and abduct health care workers. The latest, on November 4, saw nine health workers abducted in the town of Batibu in Cameroon's northwest region. Authorities blame separatists who denied responsibility. Cameroon says many health workers have fled the fighting, which also makes delivery of hospital equipment and medication difficult. During a program on State Radio Monday, health officials said the number of people who died of diabetes in the region's hospitals jumped from 260 last year to nearly 400 so far this year. But speaking on CRTV Radio, the officials said most deaths occurred out of hospitals and went unreported. The officials said most diabetes patients arrive at hospitals at critical stages because fighting and insecurity prevented them from getting needed treatments. Sinteng Gek is a medical staff member at Cameroon Baptist Convention Health Services who took part in the protest. He says most diabetic patients in the conflict areas cannot afford basic treatments such as insulin to manage their blood sugar. Very few patients can afford doing basic blood glucose monitoring. There are very few facilities that have readily available drugs to meet this patient. Recently, the ongoing conflict, the quality of living has reduced, the cost of living has actually increased. And so people would want to fend more for their food than buy insulin or medications. Cameroon's Ministry of Public Health said similar World Diabetes Day events took place near the northern border with Chad and Nigeria and in the English-speaking western regions. Anglophone separatists in Cameroon's western regions have, since 2017, 
been fighting to break away from the French-speaking majority, citing second-class treatment. Cameroon's National Diabetes and Hypertension Program says about 9% of adults in urban areas live with diabetes, up from 6% in 2021. The program says 80% of patients are undiagnosed and only a quarter of people with known diabetes have adequate control of their blood sugar. Cameroon's government blamed lack of physical exercise made worse by the COVID-19 pandemic's isolation measures for increasing cases of diabetes. Moki Edwin Kinzuka for VOA News, Yawundi, Cameroon. Human Rights Watch says the closure of camps for people displaced by Islamist militants in Nigeria's Borno state a year ago has pushed more than 200,000 people into extreme poverty. In a recent report, the rights group says Nigerian authorities failed to provide those removed from the camps with adequate alternatives. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja, Nigeria. The 59-page report by Human Rights Watch was released Wednesday, more than one year after Borno State authorities began shutting down IDP camps in the capital, Maiduguri. The rights group said lack of essential support by humanitarian aid organizations since then has pushed over 200,000 IDPs into deeper suffering and destitution. It said authorities did not provide those removed from camps with adequate support for food, shelter and security. Anyete Erwang is the author of the Human Rights Watch report. She says authorities did not get the opinions of the IDPs before closing the camps. This plan to shut down these camps is premature because the authorities cannot ensure that people who are moving out of these camps can continue to sustain themselves. In many of the places they're encouraging people to return to, um, there's not enough infrastructure to support the large influx of people coming in. The report said more than 140,000 IDPs were compelled to evacuate eight camps in Maiduguri between May 2021 and August of this year. It said two other camps housing a total of nearly 74,000 people are expected to close by the end of 2022. Brown State authorities said the decision was made to resettle IDPs back to their ancestral homes, reduce reliance on aid, and foster the redevelopment plan of the conflict-stricken state. Baba Ali Mustafa is the immediate past welfare coordinator of the Borno State Ministry of Women Affairs. He defends the decision to close the camps and says authorities have been making efforts to help the IDPs resettle. The state government did it with the intention to uh, build their resilience. That doesn't mean they were left stranded. Monthly, the state government moved to distribute them food items. Some of them, they were even given the starter pack to start business. Uh, it's a gradual process. But Ewang questions whether Nigerian authorities made the right decision. When you cut off people from their uh, source 
which is significantly humanitarian aid um, on the premise that you want to wean them off of food to develop and you're not putting in place any sort of alternatives are you really pursuing a development objective we're not seeing people benefit we're rather seeing people suffer and that is really concerning for us millions of people in northeast nigeria have been displaced from their homes since the boko Haram insurgency began in 2009 bornu adamawa and yobe states are the most impacted states with more than 1.8 million displaced in bornu state alone Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiya Suhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Adrias Rigas, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.